The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
You're listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss Tavistock's War Against the Public, Part 2. And this part involves the CIA. Uh, so we're going to explore uh, a little bit more deeply into something we started here uh, with the first uh, publication I did of Tavistock's War Against the Public. And we're going to look at the influence of uh, uh, Mr. John Rawlings Reese uh, on, you know, the social engineering aspect of society, uh, how he was very influential within Tavistock and how his reach with Tavistock reached to other areas of the world and how this mechanism is still in play today and how, uh, you know, it, it ties directly into things going on in the world today. And we're going to look at these different aspects of it and we'll be reading again uh, from a publication called The Campaigner published by the National Caucus of Labor Committees. This is the April 1974 edition. And uh, the uh, title of this issue of the Campaigner magazine is called The Tavistock Grin. And we had gone through uh, an article last time in the first part of the Tavistock's War Against the Public. It was titled, Low Intensity Operations, the Recian Theory of War. And tonight we're going to go through... Uh, portions of another article from that same issue as as the one we had first discussed. And this one's called The Real CIA. Uh, so we're going to get through uh, the establishment of the CIA, what has happened and how the CIA has become part of the big machine, so to say, here. And this article is written by a Mr. L. Marcus. Uh, so uh, we're, we're not going to go through the whole article, but I'm going to start partway through the article because... Uh, there's a lot of really important information in here. Uh, so we're going to get uh, basically to the important stuff here and try to start connecting all the dots for people to see just how much influence this John Rawlings Reese has had and how much uh, his uh, organization that he helped to found and, and uh, you know promote the Tavistock Institute, how much influence they truly have in the world and how it all ties together. And uh, you'll start to see some interesting uh, connections come about as we get through here. So I'm going to just start in because there's a ton of information to cover. Before we summarize the reader's characteristic difficulties in interpreting the facts of the conspiracy itself, we should dispense with an extremely significant but more easily resolved problem. Why do we describe the plot as one launched at the first of the present year? And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. Remember, this was the April edition from 1974. So he's saying 1974. That's uh, what he's talking about here in context. So uh, just keep that in mind. It says here, let's continue on. On the surface, the point appears eminently arguable. The effort to discredit the U.S. presidency and Congress, a classic fascist precondition for takeover, is directly traced to such preparations as Daniel Ellsberg's role in perpetrating the Pentagon Papers hoax and more immediately to the spring 1972 plumbers operations. On the British end of the current plot, the qualifications of the British Military Service and MI5 for present low-intensity police state operations in England, Wales, and Scotland were developed by deliberate manipulation of a civil rights struggle in Northern Ireland into a protracted dress rehears rehearsal for fascist rule throughout the United Kingdom. 
The U.S. war in Vietnam, initiated and essentially directed for most of its term by the CIA, will turn out to be more of a preparation for fascism in the USA than any objective in Southeast Asia. The Peace Corps and Office of Economic Opportunity were also for Rockefeller's recent fascist plot in an associated theory and practice of interconnected social control and brainwashing technology. Since the system of social control and brainwashing developed by that gifted reactionary psychopath Brigadier Dr. John Rawlings Reese of the Tavistock Institute and World Federation of Mental Health premises its fascist scheme on pathological features of the victim's existing belief system. It follows that the individual will refuse to assimilate the evidence on this point unless he is also prepared to deal with those profound neurotic disorders which render him so vulnerable to recent forms of fascist manipulation. Even after those objections have been confronted, the wishful skeptic will turn up ever new arguments for remaining just that until he has been shown that an alternative exists. This represents the most important, if if implicit, objection with whose treatment we shall conclude this present article. And I'm going to pause there, folks. All right, so what the author of the article here is indicating is... uh, very much some of the things that we discussed in the first part of this whole Tavistock Institute, uh, um, you know, their war against the public, right? The first episode we did here. It's all about mental health, right? It's all about affecting people's minds. And keep that in mind with the events that have been happening in the world just very recently. Keep that in mind about, uh, you know, uh, the the whole presence of the whole mental health argument uh, around everything here. Okay, this is an important important key point. Uh, so let's go ahead. Let's read forward here. <coughs> Excuse me. So the next section here in the article, he says, "What is the Central Intelligence Agency?" According to federal statute and other myths concocted for the edifying deception of the credulous, the CIA is merely a key constituent of the U.S. intelligence community, a mere appendage of the National Security Council, vying with various intelligence services, the Defense Department, the Treasury, the FBI, et al., In the view of wishful and other credulous persons, the CIA may occasionally perform Mission Impossible types of activities in dealing with Soviet spies or in enterprising pursuit of the latest Soviet missile developments details. Nothing more than this. Only children and otherwise uninformed or hysterical persons believe such fables. All the published accounts of the CIA written by various experts, including former insiders of the intelligence community, may be challenged as partially faulty by virtue of particular misrepresentations or bias. Yet, sifting out such flaws, too much truth about the CIA has been exposed, and too much of that truth abundantly confirmed in other ways to entertain a reasonable denial of the fact that the CIA as it appears in the federal budget, is merely the legal cover for vast encroachments on every branch of government and enormous sectors of private institutions. In general, 
James Schlesinger's takeover of the Defense Department merely consolidates a long-time and rapidly growing takeover of all military branches to the point of becoming virtually mere appendages of the CIA. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. Remember, this was written in 1974. This guy saw the writing on the wall and understood what was going on in 1974, right? And only ever since then, you know, especially since then, how things have become such a stranglehold of control for those very few in uh, some of these positions of power here and in some of these uh, positions in the intelligence community, so to say, right? Let's read on, and we're going to see just how far this infiltration has gone uh, and to what ends that it's gone to. The Department of Health, Education, and Welfare is one of several pr principal bastions of CIA operations within the U.S. I'm going to repeat that, folks. The Department of Health, Education, and Welfare is one of the several principal bastions of CIA operations within the U.S. itself. Nearly the completion of a process begun with the establishment of the Office of Economic Opportunity under President John F. Kennedy. The Justice Department may have an independent attorney general, but the FBI under new chief Clarence Kelly has been taken over by the CIA at the top. And the more recently established Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, the LEAA, is nothing but the principal domestic covert operations arm of the CIA. I'm going to pause right there for a moment, folks. Remember, once again, this is 1974. What had happened during that time frame is apparently uh, the CIA had infiltrated various other branches of government service in such a way here that this gentleman points it out and had also set up um, some other uh, quasi-government organizations or quasi-government groups uh, that were put in place as sort of a, a cover story for other things, but which were actual aspects of covert operations within the U.S., right? And he's saying the LEAA, and I'm sure many of you have heard of the LEAA, the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration. So what the author here is saying is that uh, this organization is the covert operations arm of the CIA within the U.S. So that's an important thing to keep in mind, too. Uh, a lot of these different agencies, you know, it, you wonder, what are they for? right? What are they for? And, and this is, you know, begins to connect some dots here. But let's read on here. <clears throat> Rockefeller's CIA operative, Henry Kissinger, heads up a State Department undergoing a reorganization along lines agreeable to Langley. Going to pause there. And remember, this was 1974, this was written. So Henry Kissinger was in the State Department at that time, reorganizing things to line up with, uh, the intelligence agencies uh, or the intelligence communities uh, wants and needs at the time. Remember that. That's an important concept here. Let's read on here. Most major universities are either entirely or substantially branches of the CIA. At the University of Michigan, we have the most notorious example of the Institute for Social Research, or the ISR, which is merely the focus for general CIA infiltration and control of many departments of the university at large. 
Harvard's Russian Institute is obviously CIA, like Columbia's, but also Harvard's so-called psychology department, is a nest of such overt CIA operatives as the pigeon-brained B.F. Skinner and Riesian racist Richard Hernstein, while the Harvard sociology department's counterinsurgency work merely updates overt fascist traditions dating back to the 1920s. I'm going to pause there. This guy is laying down uh, some heavy information here, folks. He's saying that uh, most of the funding and, uh, you know, the things like that that go into many of these major Ivy League schools are covert ops through the intelligence community, right? Uh, and, and many, they use that these schools as cover for some of the things they do, the research uh, that they gather. Much of this is done for the intelligence agencies, folks, and I would argue things like DARPA would be an intelligence agency. They all are tied together, see? And there's there's also uh, IARPA, right? That's uh, the intelligence community's uh, official upfront uh, version of DARPA. But you see, now all these things get kind of interlaced together, but uh, we're talking about... Uh, <coughs> Major universities here uh, are kind of uh, co-opted by CIA interests here. Uh, so let's read on here because it's, it's going over some more here. Massachusetts Institute of Technology continues its flourishing CIA activities as extension of its earlier role as a base of OSS activities. In addition to its specializations as an anti-Soviet think tank, it possesses an assortment of the most reactionary, CIA-linked social sciences services in the nation. Its RLE division has been a nesting place for specialized counterinsurgency studies since the late 1940s, while also including those studies in so-called artificial intelligence, which are nothing but the development of the use of computers for brainwashing. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. Remember, 1974... This was 1974 this was written. He mentions artificial intelligence here. And what its role was, was intended to be. It's the use of computers and technology for brainwashing, is what he's saying. Uh, it's about control. Controlling human behavior. Controlling the human mind. That's what it's being developed for. That's what it's always been. Right? So, uh Let's read on here, because there, there's more. Wait, there's more. The University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School houses Eric Trist, a veteran Rockefeller-sponsored Riesian fascist who directs a vast network of fascist social work projects and actual brainwashing activities from his offices at that location. Cornell, Berkeley, Stanford are notorious CIA conduits. In general, most of the social sciences and related departments of major universities today are nothing but CIA branch operations. Given the time that has been used to effect such a result, the outcome is hardly, hardly to be considered astonishing. Through control of governmental and major foundations, as well as corporate and wealthy individual funding, it has been no great matter to control not only what programs are funded, but to control the selection of instructors who move into controlling positions as the older generation of honest academics are weeded out by retirement or themselves corrupted into becoming CIA establishment operatives or agents. The CIA control of private foundations is ABC. 
the first major foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, was established by the family following the bloody Ludlow Massacre of 1914. It was the Rockefeller family which pressured Iron Pants Henry Ford into creating the Ford Foundation, and the Rockefeller family which placed its agent, CIA operative McGeorge Bundy of the CIA Bundy family, at the head of that institution. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. So, uh, it's talking about... Uh, here, this, this is tying a lot of things together. It's saying uh, the intelligence communities, the military-industrial complex, so to say, and uh, the major foundations and wealthy uh, private interests like the Rockefellers all had uh, a lot of say into placing these Reesian theories into practice in many of the universities and throughout the intelligence community. Uh, so you, you see the extent of the reach that uh, this John Rawlings Reese has had and the reach of Tavistock throughout all of these different uh, uh, entities, so to say, right? Uh, and, um, you know, it talks about uh, now uh, Rockefeller placed its uh, operative, McGeorge Bundy, at the head of the Ford Foundation, right? So uh, you see how it's a very small network controlling all these interests. Uh, McGeorge Bundy, look that guy up. <laughs> He's got the intelligence community ties all over him. He's linked to a lot of different things. Uh, but uh, let's read on here, because I'm sure we'll get further into uh, some of this stuff. As for governmental funding, brainwashing is funded in part through the National Institute of Health, or its subsidiary, the National Institute of Mental Health. The National Science Foundation, another conduit controlled by representatives of the Rockefeller CIA establishment, helps out. Recently, the LEAA has been acting as a CIA funding conduit on its own account. As the Defense Department is taken over increasingly by the CIA, its funding programs are slanted to the desired general effect. Through the leverage principle of contributory pro rata funding, which has become rampant in federal, state, and local programs, the mass of funding is controlled directly by the Rockefeller CIA establishment, whether through the foundations or CIA-controlled channels of government, increasingly determines the direction of flow of fundings from even non-CIA-controlled sources. A few examples are sufficient to identify some general dimensions of CIA takeover throughout the society generally. The war in Vietnam. Outdoing private CIA war against the nation of Indonesia, the U.S. war in Vietnam began as, in, as entirely 1955-64, a CIA war against the Vietnamese people. With the U.S. ambassador on premises, nothing but a highly placed CIA operative. Actual U.S. military units were not introduced into Vietnam until 1964, and even after that, pseudo-defense department personnel, CIA operatives wearing the cover of military rank, e.g. General Ed Lansdale, must be credited with directing most of the operations in that theater. For example, the notorious My Lai war crime massacre was merely a tiny, tiny corner of the CIA's ongoing Operation Phoenix, whose function was to identify and exterminate the men, women, and children of the so-called Viet Cong infrastructure. 
Unable to win war over the South Vietnamese populated by other assorted counterinsurgency tactics, e.g. the Village Hamlet program, the CIA opted for simply butchering those families discovered to be political sympathizers of the National Liberation Front. The Pinkville butchery was merely one of many similar SS-type operations. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. I'm not familiar with all of those uh, different events uh, from the Vietnam War. Uh, But I do know that uh, some uh, brutality was reported in that case uh, with these things. So it's important to keep that stuff in mind here uh, when we're moving forward to think that perhaps... It was the CIA that was running the show at that point, and not necessarily our uh, our regular armed forces. So this was a special operations program going on there, and that's what this guy is claiming. And there was a lot more going on than uh, what we were told at the time, or what, what's accepted as mainstream history. Let's put it that way. There were covert operations going on there for different reasons. So let's keep that in mind, but uh, let's continue on. It says, equally instructive, the so-called investigation of the My Lai incident was conducted by a CIA operative who produced the basis for the official military report, which whitewashed all of those actually responsible for ordering the atrocity. The Pentagon Papers hoax. As of this date, no secret really has been made of the general way in which the so-called Pentagon Papers were compiled. Firstly, the papers were not compiled by or for the Pentagon, but on behalf of the CIA, with complicity of such CIA adjuncts as the RAND Corporation, with the selection and supplementary concoction of included documents performed by such CIA operatives as author Daniel Ellsberg, and I'm going to pause there for a moment, folks. The Pentagon Papers, okay? Uh, This was uh, a sort of, I guess, a a briefing as to uh, what intelligence operations were happening in Vietnam at the time. Uh, And so uh, you you could see when it's CIA assets uh, that are investigating CIA assets, well, what happens? That's kind of like the fox investigating the fox that raided the hen house, right? Uh, so, um, <laughs> what kind of uh, uh, you know uh, information do you really expect to get out of that? But uh, let's let's continue the reading here to get to the the core of this, and we'll, we'll get to the good stuff in a minute. This is just laying some foundational things, right? The essential thrust of the project was the assembly of selected actual documents, many initially created by the CIA or based on CIA briefings, and supplementary materials whose overall intended effect was to exonerate the CIA from responsibility for a wide variety of unpopular military and related developments which the CIA itself had chiefly authored. In essence, the effect of the Pentagon Papers was, for anyone credulous enough to believe them, to whitewash the CIA for its own activities. Can it be believed that such an effort was undertaken with the intended purpose of concealing the false report under a top-secret seal? The entire concoction is in the fine old tradition of the Tsarist Okrana's notorious anti-Semitic pioneering venture into modern black psychological warfare, the Tsarist-authored Protocols of Zion. Such secret documents are written for the purpose of affording them the widest possible public attention. 
the top secret classification, in the fine hand of the public relations specialist, who thereby assures himself that his handiwork will receive the widest circulation and simultaneously evoke the maximum awe from among the credulous. How are such hoaxes put across? Would the CIA arrange for its publication in a way which would be directed, directly attributed to its sponsorship? Scarcely. A devious confidence man's procedure was indicated. Through Ellsberg's performance, the desired effect was secured. An outright fraud was hallowed for a gullible public by representing the concoction as a most secret document, filched from the most intimate files of the most all-powerful agencies at unspeakable risk by an astonishingly courageous, conscious-stricken CIA operative. And I'm going to pause there. Does that sound familiar, Edward Snowden? Hmm. See, it's the old tricks are the best tricks. It's the same thing that's always gone on, right? So any of this stuff that's leaked, well, rest assured, folks, it's not really leaked, right? <laughs> Think about that for a minute. Any supposed intelligence leak uh, of uh, something like that, this isn't a leak. It's put out there on purpose. There's a reason for it. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the reason is not always, uh, you know, what you might think on the face value of it. But uh, at any rate, you see, this is one of the, the, the old tricks, right? They will present, uh, you know, what they would consider uh, classified or secret information. They, they let that get out to the public or, you know, what the public think that that's what this is. It's misdirection sometimes uh, with a lot of these things. Uh, so that being the case, when you think about that, uh, understand that, uh, you know, this this has gone on from time immemorial here. Uh, but uh, th this is one of the ways that they operate. And this is all by the hand of Tavistock, right? This whole misdirection game that they use with this thing. Let's read on. The manner in which the desired leak was affected is only less hairy than the papers themselves. To explain how and why a right-wing CIA operative, Ellsberg, an associate of General Ed Lansdale, could be converted, the public has been told that the convenient Damascus Road transformation was accomplished under the influence of Professor Noam Chomsky of MIT, an individual with a credible standing as a leading anti-war activist. Chomsky's role as the official dupe in the affair grows murky when we note Chomsky's endorsement of the hoax after its publication. As a leading anti-war activist, Chomsky had abundant access to all the knowledge necessary to spot the whitewashing of the CIA as a blatant fraud. The publication, affected through the usual CIA press conduits, the New York Times et al., going to pause there. You hear that? The New York Times, a CIA press conduit. A Rockefeller CIA operative, Henry Kissinger, allegedly ordered the CIA unit from the White House basement to investigate Ellsberg, beginning to set up an even bigger CIA hoax. The Watergate hoax. On a dark and probably foggy night of mid-1972, a scuttling gaggle of CIA operatives crept into Washington's Watergate Hotel, accompanied by half a platoon of well-known CIA gusanos to plant bugging devices in a Democratic headquarters located on the premises. Mysteriously, this small invasion force was detected, with the aid of a tip-off. Lo and behold, the U-Hire spooks were taken with their payoff money on their persons. 
Curiously, for over a year and a half, no one troubled to seriously investigate the CIA's involvement in this affair. CIA officials were politely asked if they had been involved. Conforming to their statutory obligation to deny everything under all circumstances, the CIA representatives insisted that they were not in any way involved. Their perfunctory denial was therewith promptly treated as gospel. Once the 1972 election campaign had ended, a pair of Washington Post reporters produced strong evidence through a CIA leak, leading not to CIA infiltration of the White House, but to the presidency and the presidency alone. Undoubtedly, President Nixon has some significant responsibility for the activities of the CIA. However, no president since Harry Truman's term of office has exerted significant restraints on the agency. President Eisenhower checked the CIA significantly less than Truman had. President Kennedy initially almost turned the government over to the CIA. And it says in parentheses here, Bay of Pigs, Peace Corps, Office of Economic Opportunity, the role of the Bundy brothers, etc., and was assassinated shortly after he began placing preliminary checks in the way of certain limited aspects of further CIA encroachments. President Johnson placed no checks upon the CIA, and President Nixon, although breathing down their necks at one point, allowed the office of the presidency to be held captive to the CIA through Rockefeller-linked appointments and CIA intrusions made possible through... Mediation of Rockefeller appointees. By excluding almost axiomatically any effort to seriously probe the massive evidence leading directly to the CIA, the list of suspects for investigation was arbitrarily narrowed down to the office of the presidency itself. Such an artificial restriction on investigations, an hysterical fallacy of composition of all evidence and argument, meant that the more dirt, the more mystery, the more cover-up was turned up, the more conclusive seemed the evidence against the only agency permitted to be considered as a suspect. This point is emphasized at the hysteria erupting from notorious CIA conduits, such as Jack Anderson, at the mere threat, it says e.g. Senator Baker's low-keyed inquiry, of investigating some of the more glaring points of hitherto neglected evidence. The giant... or gigantic cover-up in the Watergate investigations, a cover-up assisted by much of the leading press, is the frantic suppression of all investigations leading towards the CIA. The investigations afoot are therefore themselves extremely suspect. Behind the current prosecutions is a special prosecutor, Leon Jaworski, who has a long history of association with CIA front organizations and with the CIA's pet domestic project, the efforts to replace lawful state and local police and prosecution agencies with the Gestapo-like LEAA. Obviously, an attorney is not necessarily prejudiced by his clients, but Jaworski's evasion of the lush CIA aspect of the case does justify suspicion of prejudice. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Remember, the, uh, the, the, the date of this writing was 1974, so all of this stuff was still very fresh then, right? Now, we could look back uh, with a, a different kind of uh, perspective of this, because now this is history. This is in our past. Uh, but uh, it was well recognized by some keen observers at the time 
what shenanigans were going on. And we could look back now and say, absolutely, there were these shenanigans and the intelligence agencies were very likely involved uh, and, you know, all of these different aspects of things. But back then, I mean, people had a lot more trust for their government, right? People had more trust in these types of agencies. And they they really did not, uh, you know, suspect at large. I mean, you know, in, in view of the public at large, they did not suspect that anything nefarious was going on aside from uh, whatever they were being told about this, whoever they, the finger was being pointed at. Of course, that was the, the guilty party, right? And of course, the uh, ones that were investigating it, well, they were, you know, a neutral outside source investigating it, in the view of the public anyway. Uh, but you, you could see how the uh, the tentacles of control had reached into all these different facets of uh, government structure, right? So that uh, these things were able to, to go on. And uh, the ones that are truly responsible for many things, uh, notably the, the ones in within the intelligence agencies, were exonerated of all this, or, uh, you know, their, their, their trail was covered, so to say. This is what they're notoriously good at doing, is, like, trying to cover their trail uh, with a lot of these things. But let's read on here. The case against the attorney for the House Judiciary Committee processing the impeachment hearings, John Doar, is much stronger. Doar was an activist supporter of CIA operative McGeorge Bundy's New York City community control counterinsurgency operations and continues as an official of a Brooklyn organization known as The East, which is directly implicated in various kinds of criminal activities in collaboration with the CIA units, LEAA, planted in the police department of the city of New York. Doar is... Prosecuting President Nixon is a case of the kettle calling the tumbler black. Not surprisingly, Dorr also omits serious consideration of a CIA frame-up of the president. And we're going to pause right there for a moment, folks. I think that's the end of the uh, Watergate portion of what he's talking about, but we'll see. We're going to get into some more interesting aspects of how far-reaching this whole uh, Tavistock control system is. And who are the ones pulling the strings? And how much influence this John Rawlings Reese fellow had? And how his, uh, his tactics were adopted by this network and were used to take over various facets of government agency and position people into the right places uh, within uh, corporate structure, within government structure, within all of these different places. And, uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, philanthropic foundations, so to say, as well, that fund everything. See, when you control the funding of everything, well, don't you control pretty much uh, what it is you're looking for, what the outcomes are going to be of these things? Uh, so that's the important part here. So so now the next part is termed HEW takeover. That's Health, Education, and Welfare Takeover. The CIA's infiltration of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare is, next to the bestial fascist LEAA itself, the most hideous aspect of the agency's U.S. domestic crimes. HEW was inevitably a special prime target for John Rawlings Reese and his followers. 
Apart from the military police apparatus features of the CIA plot, the essential distinguishing features of the Anglo-American political intelligence operations teams is the calculated use of coordinated sociological and psychiatric techniques of insurgency, counterinsurgency, and social control generally. Going to pause there. This is probably the key idea that's foundational to everything right now. I'm going to read that sentence again. I know it's kind of a lengthy sentence, but uh, um, it's important to understand this. So it says here, Apart from the military police apparatus features of the CIA plot, the essential distinguishing features of the Anglo-American political intelligence operations teams is the calculated use of coordinated sociological and psychiatric techniques of insurgency, counterinsurgency, and social control generally. That's what it's all about, folks. Social control. And they use insurgency and counterinsurgency. What do we see going on with organizations like, say, Black Lives Matter, right? It's all the same things. This is all psychological warfare tactics. Uh, they infiltrate uh, various groups or produce and or create different groups and fund them uh give them ideas on what to do and set them loose in the streets and uh, then they that gives them justification to send in the jackboot thugs right uh so it's it's you know insurgency counterinsurgency see it's it's all the same it's two sides of the same coin pretty much but it's all a control mechanism uh, and it's all to create division right Anyway, let's read on. <clears throat> the armed features of Riesian fascism are essentially just that. The essence of the Riesian system, its fascist quality, is concentrated in its social and psychological operations. Ries himself was reportedly specific and emphatic on the point involved. The fascist society of the future, he envisaged, must be made possible through local quote, community health services, end quote, including mass application of psychiatric treatment to populations through these centers, whether or not those victims required or desired such services. I'm going to pause there, folks, and read that again. And keep in mind the events of the past couple weeks here. And understand this call that we're seeing. We need to do something about mental health right? Mental health. And it goes hand in hand with the whole gun control narrative, doesn't it? All of this. You, do, do you understand what's being set up here? And, and look back at the uh, past several years of uh, what they've done to the medical system and how difficult they've made things and how they've uh, pretty much tried to get everybody into this digital system now. Uh, now, Apply that to mental health standards. And uh, this is what you're looking at here. And this is where the plan comes from. This is the foundational roots of a lot of it. John Rawlings Reese. I'm going to read this sentence again. Pay very close attention to the words. This is important. If you take nothing else away from this tonight, remember this. Okay? This was all planned long ago. This was 1974. This guy pointed this out. All right? 
The fascist society of the future, he envisaged, must be made possible through local community health services, including mass application of psychiatric treatment to populations through these centers, whether or not those victims required or desired such services. That's what we're looking at being snapped into place here, folks. This is truly concerning. This is an insidious thing. Let's read on and see what else has been uh, uh, instituted here by Tavistock and the Rockefellers and the CIA, right? This is basically, this is your big three control center uh, set up here. You have your your wealthy elite families represented by the Rockefellers. Uh, You have Tavistock Institute, which has reached its tentacles into every facet of of government and society all across the world. And many of the foundational ideas thereof belonged to this John Rawlings Reese. And these are his methods and his uh, theories being applied uh, through many of these institutions to bring about this social change that they're looking for, right? So this is what we're talking about. But I'm going to go get back into the reading here. And uh, we'll, we'll probably tangent off of that a little bit more as we go. Aided by diverse fascist agents brought under his wing during OSS days, such as Gordon Alport, Kurt Lewin, Kenneth Clark and their collaborators, and using both the London Tavistock Institute and World Federation of Mental Health as his personal bases of operations, Reese moved in on U.S., Canadian, and British governmental social services. I'm going to pause there, folks. For those that don't know, when we're referring to OSS, that's the Office of Strategic Services, and this was the precursor of the CIA. This was the intelligence services used towards the end of World War II and directly after World War II that morphed eventually into what our modern CIA is. Uh, so that, that's an important thing to keep in mind as well. So Reese had his uh, influence within the CIA and the OSS from the very beginning, right? So we could see what's been done here, but let's read on. In Great Britain, this was accomplished chiefly with the aid of British intelligence officers associated with Brigadier Reese and General Strong, such as Richard Crossman, Labour Party, and Powell, Tory Party, with direct, open control of those services established under Powell's regime in the Tory Macmillan government of the early 1960s. And I'm going to pause there. So you see, here it is, uh, Reese had inroads to both of the major political parties. Do you see? Uh, it's it's the whole Hegelian control mechanism in, at play again. It, it works the same with all these different governments, right? You have your two options. You, it's, you know, pick your side. But you know what? At the top of the topmost uh, levels of the power structure, it doesn't matter. Both those sides are working on the same team, and it's not us. It's not for us. It's not team us. It's not for the masses, right? It represents very, uh, you know, small special interest groups, so to say. But let's read on. During this same period, under first President Kennedy and then President Johnson, enterprises such as the Peace Corps and the Office of Economic Opportunity were merely the most publicized CIA fronts. 
more vicious are the National Institute of Health and National Institute of Mental Health, which are nothing but openly criminal organizations openly sponsoring Nuremberg crimes against humanity in defiance of the U.S. Constitution and international law alike. And I'm going to pause right there. And I don't think this guy could be more correct. And he called this out back in 1974, folks. If this guy is still alive and around today, I could imagine what he might be thinking right now if he's still around. Uh, so, uh, th this is just truly uh, fascinating to see just how much influence Tavistock has had uh, within society at large. And this is, this is the nuts and bolts of, of how they got it done. But let's read on here. Even the left, it says, next part here. Contrary to the most naive image of the CIA, which obviously confuses the organization with the FBI, the CIA establishment is predominantly left-liberal, but no less passionately anti-communist in its political complexion. A few examples here indicate the nature and extent of the CIA's infiltration and takeover of what are usually regarded as even socialist organizations. State Department Socialists, one of the most important of the traditional recruiting grounds for CIA operatives and agents, has been the Second International and its trade union bureaucratic component. During the late 1930s, together with the Lovestonites, the Socialist Party of America provided a significant complement of operatives and agents for Cold War activities both abroad and domestically. The Appalachian State Department Socialist, which they earned during that period pr preceding the growth of the CIA's power, has stuck despite the prevalent transfer of loyalties to the CIA itself. Together, with the ultra-liberals of the Americans for Democratic Action stereotype, Joseph Ra et al., and the dupes of intelligence agent John Gardner, and it says in parentheses, common cause, and I'm going to pause for a second there, common cause. Okay, this, this was a, a mantra uh, back then, and, and a, a, an actual, uh, I guess, movement back then, or, or, you know, a method of teaching back then, common cause. And we saw, see later, uh, you know, over, go back about a decade or so ago uh, in Britain, and we see what they call common purpose training for many uh, people uh, within areas of government and, you know, government organizations and stuff like this. Same thing, folks. It, it all carries forward today. The names may change slightly, but it's all the same things. But anyway, let's read on. So it says, These SP third camp types, trade union bureaucrats, and a strata of liberal academics provide the overwhelming bulk of the CIA's operatives and agents outside military type and mission impossible specialties as such. So I'm going to pause there. So what they're saying here is the influence of the CIA uh, is wielded within these different uh, places, right? It says here the strata of liberal academics, <laughs> see, and, uh, you know, many of these uh, union organizations and things like that, and this is where they wield a lot of their power, right? This is where the power base is. Uh, so that, that's, and it's all left liberal leaning type organizations and places. So that, that's what he's claiming here. But let's, let's read on here. 
and I think he'll affirm what he's saying more than I'm able to affirm it. New Left Strata. Recent Labor Committee intelligence studies have firmly identified the founding of Students for a Democratic Society as a CIA establishment project designed as an updated Zubatov Union or Father Gepon movement for potentially radical campus strata. The origins in the third camp student affiliate of the League for Industrial Democracy are merely suggestive. The training of initiating SDS activists in CIA-linked Alinsky or Alinsky-type programs for operatives recruitment is almost conclusive. I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So what he's saying here is they're uh, recruiting within the college campuses, right? They're initiating people within these college campuses into these socialist ideologies, right? And uh, they recruit from many of these, uh, those that they think would best suit CIA purposes or intelligence operative purposes here. And uh, it harkens back to the teachings of Saul Alinsky here. Uh, That's another important figure in a lot of this. Uh, Saul Alinsky, uh, he he wrote uh, a book famously titled Rules for Radicals. If you want to read something interesting, go read that. This will that'll tell you everything you need to know about all this lunatic stuff that we see going on today. All this lefty loony garbage going on. This is the guy that literally wrote the book on it, uh, telling you know how to do things, uh, what to do, um, and you know to and get responses and stuff from that. This guy wrote the book, okay, Saul Alinsky, uh, and that's who he's talking about here. But uh, they they recruited from within the college campuses uh, to to do this stuff, right, in order to uh, set up these types of organizations. Let's read on. Certain features of the programs pushed by those trainees are so uniquely counterinsurgency designs that the other circumstantial evidence forms merely an essential part of what is aggregately a conclusive case. To one familiar with the general history of the Zubatov unions and Gapone movement, the analogy is exceptionally appropriate. Like the czarist police unions of the pre-1905 period, the attempt to spread the organization caused matters to get fairly well out of the hands of the counterinsurgency agents operating chiefly out of Alinsky's home base in Chicago. The Labor Committee's intervention to organize the Columbia University April 1968 strike, the 1969 University of Pennsylvania sit-in, and various progressive Labor Party activities are the notable examples of some degree of successful counter-counterinsurgency, which led to the CIA establishment's orders for SDS's self-destruction in spring 1969. And it says, however, how one deals variously with counterinsurgency formations is not the topic immediately under consideration at this point of our right. So I'm going to pause there, folks. So essentially, what it's saying here is uh, they've taken the ideas of Alinsky and they've, um, you know, taken ideas from what they call counterinsurgency operations, uh, which is part of psychological warfare operations, and have utilized them in a domestic way in this way. And many of these things that you see organized, these different strikes or protests and things like that, are largely organized and orchestrated through the intelligence agencies. I I can't get this point emphasized enough here. So things like Black Lives Matter, 
uh, the, the, all the protests and stuff they do. Anytime you see um, any of this LGBTQ garbage going on where there's these massive protests with that, that's all counterinsurgency operations. It's all psychological warfare, folks. It's all quarterbacked through intelligence agencies and intelligence assets. Make no doubt about that, right? Uh, so let, let's read on here. The primary purpose for creating the new left of the early 1960s was to preempt the radicalization of college youth strata to two overlapping ends. Immediately, the purpose was to prevent the established socialist parties from effectively capturing the social ferment which had erupted beginning 1958, which had come to a focus around the Cuban Revolution and civil rights movement up through the mid 19 or up through mid 1961. At the same time, with such enterprises as the Peace Corps, Office of Economic Opportunity, and sundry foundation-sponsored community action projects for radicals in development at the time, to drain off student radicalism into staffing of, a, of an expanding counterinsurgency apparatus around the Riesian fascist conception of local community control or community action projects. Not accidentally, therefore, the recent fascist social control techniques of leaderless group or participatory democracy and co-participation or corporativism were the chief points on which the new left's designers differentiated it from the so-called old left, post-industrial society, quality of life, rather than material demands, community, and relevance were key phrases by which one could identify the conscious pseudo-socialist fascist agents within the movement. Not everyone who was duped into regurgitating such idiocy, of course, but those who played the role of Alinsky-type organizers had the in for funding and other material goodies, and who invariably were among the first to push each new version of the counterinsurgency policy. And I'm going to pause there, folks. See, it doesn't mean the entire movement is all, uh, you know, CIA controlled, so to say, or intelligence agency controlled. It's just key people that they put into positions, into organizing positions that do this. And this is right in Saul Alinsky's manual, Rules for Radicals, right? You have this big personality player that you put in place, and they're the ones that direct point on everything. See? Uh, and, and then they just have the foolish masses following them, uh, the ones that, that buy into this ideology. Uh, so this, this is the kind of thing, this is all orchestrated through intelligence agencies. It's called counterinsurgency, right? It's, it's psychological warfare, folks. It's a military strategy. That's what it is. It's being wielded domestically against us here at home in the U.S. Still is. It's been going on for a long time. Let's read on. The new left, as such collapsed, with the Columbia strike of 1968, its constituents later either dispersing out of politics, moving directly into working-class-oriented socialist groups, moving into professional, regularly employed counterinsurgency jobs, or into one of three main types of fascist to proto-fascist groupings. Number one, the Weathermen, or Weathermen-type groupings, in it outright proto-fascist, Ford Foundation funding-created organization, number two, Maoist freak groups, and number three, counterculture drug rock cults. <laughs> Gotta pause there. Okay, 
So remember, folks, all of these things, this was all engineered, socially engineered by intelligence agencies, by these intelligence agencies that had strong ties and uh, were directed strongly uh, by the influence of not only the money of the major big foundation groups like the Rockefeller Foundation and the wealthy elitist class, but also by the direct hand and the direct, uh, how should we say, the methodologies utilized by Tavistock. Uh, and many of these ideas foundationally brought forth by John Rawlings Reese, one of the major founders of Tavistock. So many of his ideologies that have been brought down uh, in this way, because see, he, he was a well-known and you know well-liked asset for these wealthy elitists. And they liked his methodologies. He got things done, right? His methods worked. They were devious, but they worked. Uh, so that that's what's been done here. But uh, let's continue on because now this guy will, uh, in the article here, describes these different groups briefly, and then we'll get to more of the more important information here. The Weathermen. The breakup of the Columbia Strike Organization was accomplished entirely through Ford Foundation intervention. Three successive actions by CIA operative McGeorge Bundy's organization were used to isolate the Labor Committee's hardcore leadership in classic Kitson-type counterinsurgency infrastructure mode. The first two were open counterinsurgency moves. The third was covert. First, Dr. Kenneth Clark of the Ford Foundation-funded Mark Operation moved in to split off the black student group from the strike. Clark, who trained under black-hating racist Dr. John Rawlings Reese during the OSS period, is a Reesean psychologist, a member of then-Rockefeller's state regents, and one of the U.S.'s leading counterinsurgency agents against the black militant strata. Secondly, an open funding by Ford was used to cause a significant split-off from the strike organization forming Students for a Restructured University. The third covert move was the funding of Mark Rudd et al. through a conduit created by a relative of former CIA operative Dr. Herbert Marcuse. It was out of this third covert operation that the Weatherman Group developed, remaining a CIA countergang down to the present day. Going to pause there. Remember again, folks, this was written in 1974, and now you know the truth about that group known as the Weathermen, right? Founded by the CIA and put in place because they're counterinsurgency, directly funded by the Ford Foundation. Remember this. Next, he goes on to describe Maoist groups. The Chinese Communists' emphasis on austerity, anti-intellectualism, and thought purification lends itself very well to reifying Maoist doctrine as a cover for the introduction of certain principal features of Riesian fascism in a radical disguise. It is not surprising that Chinese communist leaders' psychological profiles and Chinese thought purification and other social practices have enjoyed such disproportionate study emphasis by such institutions as the Rand Corporation and Riesian sociologists and psychiatrists generally. 
It is obvious that the mindlessness so passionately embraced by most self-styled Maoist groups provides an ideal opportunity for the police agent infiltrator and provocateur, and the proliferation of such little groupings the ideal opportunity for creating a variety of police-created pseudo-gangs in ultra-radical disguise. What is perhaps only less immediately apparent, outside the ranks of professionally qualified intelligence personnel, is that with a slight perversion, that sort of storefront Maoism is an almost perfect cover for outright recent fascist gangs, e.g. of the Revolutionary Union type. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So you see, Rawlings Reese and uh, all of the people you know, from Tavistock and throughout uh, the intelligence circles here, the CIA and whatnot, Rand Corporation, all of these front groups that, uh, you know, work uh, with uh, funding from Rockefeller Foundation, Ford Foundation, all these major foundations, and uh, do work for the CIA and various other intelligence and military groups, they uh, caught on to this idea of these Maoist groups, right? Um, and, And this is uh, where they get a lot of their ideas from, right? From uh, how China, or the the Chinese government, has organized itself and how uh, it has affected the minds of its people in many ways. So it's grasped onto these ideas, and I would say this network directly, uh, you know, transcends over into mainland China itself, uh, because many of Reese's philosophies are are used there to some degree or another, too, when you look at the the state of Chinese society right now. That's why they they try to use this as the model, folks, for everything else. It's the test bed, because they've noticed this, uh, you know, this this type of, uh, um, how should we say, profile within uh, that area. This type of, uh, I don't know, I don't know the best way to describe it, this quality uh, about that. So uh, because of, uh, you know, how Mao operated and many of these ideologies have still sustained uh, through uh, Chinese organization to this day and within government groups and stuff there. So they've seen these methodologies used and they see it as a perfect cover to slide in the Riesian fascism model. Right. And that, I think, is what's been done. So uh, but not to belabor that point, let's move on here because there's a couple more important points to cover. So next section here, he says black nationalism, the former Leroy Jones recycled by Anglo-American intelligence into the zombie form of Imamu Baraka is a classic model of CIA brainwashing and counter gangs tactics combined into a single model operation. Under the immediate supervision of former intelligence operative Gustav Hennensburg, in fact, Jones's conversion into Baraka was done under the personal supervision of the top CIA operative Dr. John Rawlings Reese himself. Most of the so-called black nationalist organizations formed after the conveniently timed assassination of Malcolm X are creations of the CIA establishment. And it says in parentheses here, we shall outline below how the Reesians see black nationalism as a fascist counterinsurgency tool against black working class militancy. And I'm going to pause there, folks. And is this still going on today? 
Uh, think about that. We have things like Black Lives Matter and stuff like that today. It's these same methods being used. These were all used by Reese, right? And, and this is the thing. I mean, they, they create these different groups like this to be what they claim to be or call counterinsurgency tools, right? Uh, so they, they use this as an outlet to get people signed into uh, what it is they're looking for here, right? So if there's somebody that uh, has a beef with the system, well, they get them into one of these groups. And then, you know, that this, this does many things for them because, first of all, they know exactly who these people are now uh, that have this problem. And then they distract them uh, with something that's not going to be helpful anyway. So uh, that, that's, that's how that works. But let's continue on. And we're, we're almost to the end here. Uh, and we'll wrap up pretty soon and uh, give some closing thoughts here. The real Central Intelligence Agency. Those examples of the scope of CIA establishment activities illustrates the broad sweep of the agency's intervention into domestic life. Yet, unlike most authoritative published CIA exposés, our account points more or less directly to the principal flaw in the accounts of such experts as Wise and Ross or Prouty. The common glaring fault in the better exposés is the assertion, or otherwise the pervasive in in inference, that the insidious and illegal encroachments are essentially the outgrowth of rampant ambitions within the CIA agency itself. Without thereby descending into the bathos of dictionary nominalism, it is most worthwhile to inquire agency for what or whom. Wise, Ross, and Prouty border on asking the right questions insofar as they show that the CIA establishment has acquired the de facto power to act outside the legal channels and overview of duly const constituted federal government agencies, most notably the Congress and the courts. The fact that it exerts such power covertly suffices to show that the CIA establishment has not yet become the government, but rather represents the base of a kind of dual power, an illegal parallel government, continuing its efforts to become imminently a virtually overt power. And I'm going to pause there, folks. There's your shadow government right there. There's your quote-unquote deep state, right? It's this network, this Tavistock CIA Rockefeller network that this guy is pointing out. Now, are all the names exactly the same today? Not necessarily, not exactly, but it's still these same dynamics working together. It's Tavistock and their methodologies introduced by John Rawlings Reese uh, being implemented through intelligence agencies and uh, funded by uh, some of these wealthy uh, elitist class people 
that are, are looking to get things done. And it, it's, it's all the same, right? Uh, the, the names may have changed slightly, though. But this is essentially what the overarching conspiracy, so to say, is. So let's read on. An agency for whom and why? The first hypothesis suggests by such evidence is that the CIA is perhaps the instrument by which the presidency is attempting to encroach upon the powers of courts and legislatures. A second, more credible hypothesis would be the suggestion that perhaps the military-industrial complex acting through the Pentagon has created and uses the CIA as its secret arm. Both of these hypotheses are discredited through the sort of evidence which has appeared during the 1960s and more recently. The CIA organization of the impeachment movement against President Nixon and a pattern of encroachments against the regular military eliminate everything but the military-industrial complex from the array of probable suspects. Returning our attention to the flaws in such writings of those as of Wise and Ross or Prouty, we would locate the difficulty in the fact that they, in the vernacular proverbial, miss the forest for the trees, granting the usefulness and probable expertise of most of the details in their accounts, one would rightly conclude that their point of view is 90 degrees out of phase. Although concrete evidence is vital to the case to be made, such evidence in itself provides only a behaviorist account of the subject under investigation. Detail enumerated by itself is mere bad infinity, analogous to cataloging many of the more important biochemical constituents of an organism, missing the critical point. What is the generative principle which makes the entirety a whole? What determines its whole existence as a single organism? This included fallacy of otherwise excellent expert accounts is the fallacy of reductionism. Prouty verges on the proper line of investigation in his efforts to approximate a historical approach to analyzing the creature. In addition to reviewing the well-trodden matter of the connection between the OSS and CIA, he goes so far in the right direction as to locate the growth of the CIA from Truman through Kennedy in two respects. On the conspiratorial side, he defines the CIA as largely the creation of a conniving Alan Dulles, whose way was eased by the role of brother John Foster Dulles at state and as a chief confidant of President Eisenhower. Functionally, he emphasizes quite properly that the forces which create, created the Cold War cult thus created the policy climate, the mystique absolutely essential to cloaking illegal CIA encroachments in the magical cloak of national security. At the same time, Prouty properly emphasizes that the CIA is effectively more a conspiracy against the USA itself than the USSR. The most glaring empirical flaw in Prouty's history of the CIA is his overemphasis on the military side. He omits that unbroken thread from OSS into CIA, which not incidentally has the most direct bearing on the role of Winston Churchill's organization of the Cold War cult. He overlooks the essential fact that, from the inception of the OSS, the modern CIA establishment was a U.S. financier-promoted Anglo-American insurgency counterinsurgency project, and that the single keystone figure emerging as dominant over the entirety of the OSS-CIA development is that brilliant psychopath Rockefeller-sponsored Brigadier Dr. John Rawlings Reese.
Once that essential clue is identified, the prehistory of the OSS CIA is properly located. On the U.S. On the US side, the world outlook leading into the modern CIA establishment emerges in its first institutionalized form in the development of the Mark Hanna Civic Federation movement in a philosophy exemplified by Mark Hanna's famous and warranted praise for the old AFL leaders of labor lieutenants of the capitalist class. After the Rockefellers' bloody Ludlow Massacre of 1914, the Rockefeller Foundation's establishment performs an increasingly prominent and influential role in continuing and advancing upon the Civic Federation notions of counterinsurgency, up to the point today that the Rockefeller-controlled foundations, including the Ford Foundation, express the family's imminently dictatorial hegemony among the ranks of giant finance. The major components of insurgency, counterinsurgency technology, originate with and continue to flow from the British junior partner in the Anglo-American political intelligence establishment. This is by no means accidental. Since the last decade of the 18th century, prompted by its defeat in the American Revolution of 1776 to 1783, note counterinsurgency begins in Quebec and India, the British colonial services accumulated massive experience in successful methods of social control of subject populations. Ironically, but by no means accidentally, successful British imperialist political and social colonial tactics have been premised on the nostrums advocated by the U.S. Socialist Workers' Party, playing upon the decisive nationalist sentiments of the ruled and co-optation through local community forms of self-government. Similarly, from the middle of the 19th century, beginning with its use of Philistine clean trade unionism as a counterinsurgency tactic against the influence of the International Working Men's Association, the British have learned how to exploit the parochialist neuroses of the population in the industrial homeland to much the same desired result as appeals to nationalist and community sentiments have affected continued imperialist rule of even so-called independent. African nations to the present day. Despite the recent quarter century of U.S. and Canadian contributions to the mechanics of insurgency and counterinsurgency, it is the products of the public schools of England who continue to provide the most sophisticated basic concepts upon which the Rand Corporation and kindred CIA establishment think tanks work. The Anglo-American, including Canadian, intelligence establishment was, from its inception, the merging of U.S. material resources and talent for engineering gimmickry with British counterinsurgency conceptual leadership. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So what this is suggesting is Tavistock uh, is the psychological operations uh, type of uh, outlet for the British control of things. British colonialism, it's still going on. Uh, what this is claiming is they learned uh, through many years how to control the behaviors of their various colonies that they had set out and make them believe that they're independent colonies, but yet they still run things and they do this through mind control operations of sorts like this uh, by, uh, you know, uh, steering labor movements and stuff like that, and uh, utilizing, uh, leveraging nationalism and, uh, you know, this, this community uh, type spirit that people have 
their need or their want for independence. They make them believe that they're an independent sovereign nation or sovereign state, and they let them operate as such. But guess what? They're still under control of the British Empire, right? That's what this is pointing out. That's what Tavistock is. This is empire. Tavistock is the control arm of the British Empire. See? Let's read on. The British approach to military problems of imperialist rule at home and abroad has traditionally been that of solving the problem represented represented by limited regular military forces in the effort to rule over populations with the implicit capability of defeating those military forces. This is expressed to the present day by current statements from the White Law Kitson Chalfont Cabal to the effect that British Army, now smaller than ever, is a more effective force than ever before, largely in consequence of the recent training experience in Northern Ireland. The essential solution to this problem, from the standpoint of the British political intelligence stratum, is to employ an armamentarian of sociological and psychiatric weaponry to the effect of so dividing the subject population against itself that the military forces are never confronted with more than the small material force represented by a hardcore resistance to a generally effective combination of sociological and psychiatric weapons of control. So I'm going to pause there, folks. So essentially what this is saying here is they keep the people divided and infighting amongst themselves in the uh, this uh, population, the subject population, as they call it. Because, you see, we're, we're all subjects of the queen, right? And that, that's what's being claimed here, essentially. Is he wrong? I don't think he's necessarily wrong. But this is what's been done, right? It's the whole divide and conquer strategy. So they keep us fighting, you know, via political parties, via racial lines. Uh, any way that they could divide us, they keep us fighting in that way because that distracts us uh, from the fact that we're being controlled by somebody external to us, right? Uh, so that being the case, <laughs> it, we're more easily steered in this way. So that, that's the, uh, the philosophy at hand here. But let's read on. The philosophy of the Anglo-American intelligence establishment is to transform the regular military establishment along what are now popularly known as special forces lines of training, equipment, and deployment, which the British call low-intensity operations, and the U.S. often prefers to term stability operations. going to pause there. Stability operations, folks. A stability police force. We've seen the Rand Corporation uh, has come up with that one. A suggestion for a stability police force uh, for the United States. So that, that's exactly what this is talking about. It's a militarized police group. Only used as a special operations arm on a subject population. When they have been psychologically uh, you know, undermined to the point where uh, they're... They're malleable to that here. So, but let's read on here. At the same time, especially since the studies completed during the late 1950s, the essential task of the CIA establishment is to lead the way to 
a society of the future, a special kind of fascist regime in which the military officers of the past have been weeded out and replaced by a new type of officer corps composed of cadres trained in both regular and low-intensity military operations, but also trained through education in economics, politics, etc., to become the government. The Greek military dictatorship and the present government of Peru are exemplary products of CIA training programs of the late 1950s and early 1960s, programs developed to prepare the way for a more or less uniform array of such governments through the capitalist world. Gonna pause there. What have we seen happening in recent years? How many how many different uh, nations out there have we seen puppet governments set up in in recent years? This is the same operation still running, folks. This is exactly what's been done. They they set up these uh, people these these different governments in various places, and it's all a contrivance, isn't it? It's all control. It's all about empire, as I said. Let's read on here, though. This is currently surfacing in the heated effort to establish a NATO-run Atlantic community to replace the EEC common market. The CIA scheme for fascist world government, e.g. James Schlesinger et al., is a Western military establishment under direct CIA control, which as a whole represents what is called a flexible response force. This flexible response military machine is to have a twofold capability. In its ostensibly purely military features, it is to be organized around the Schleisinger associated myth of a first strike capability against the Soviet Union, with the USA controlling the US NATO deployment of such military capabilities. The second capability will be directed against secondary targets, which is a euphemism for the cities of one's own nation. I'm going to pause there, folks. This is an important idea. Uh, actually, I'm going to read what else the author of this article has in parentheses here first. Let me read that again. Okay, The second capability will be directed against secondary targets, which is a euphemism for the cities of one's own nation. And it says in parentheses, It is most strongly suspected that even nuclear missile submarines of the U.S. fleet either presently have or are intended to be given last-ditch Rockefeller-selected secondary target programs aimed against the major cities of the USA itself. So I'm going to pause there. This is a, an important concept here. All right, so when they're talking about secondary targets, this is about your own targets. See, this is something that's that's thoroughly disturbing. But uh, and and here's the thing: many people who are operating in the aspects of uh, uh, say these these military operations, like say somebody on the submarine. Well, they may have been told, okay, uh, it's time to fire at the secondary targets, and the secondary targets are pre-programmed, and they don't know what those targets are, or they're led to believe that those targets are something that they're not, and then they are indeed firing on their own U.S. cities. Right? That's the scenario given here. That's what it's talking about. This is how this this. Uh, intelligence network machine operates right because this gives justification for uh, 
doing other things, right? This, this whole first strike capability bit. And we, we could see how much of a contrivance that this whole thing is. So then they could say, okay, well, uh, say uh, there was a missile launched or something at a U.S. city, and then they would blame Russia, right? This was all during the Cold War. This was all in the heart of the Cold War. Of course, nothing much has changed, right? Because it's the same thing going on now. Uh, they're, they're blaming Russia for everything again. But uh, so say there's a target hit in the U.S. Well, they'll blame Russia, and that gives them uh, the justification to go ahead and fire back on Russian targets or something then, right? Uh, even though it was, you know, from their own their own machines, so to say. But uh, anyway, let's, let's read on here, though. In addition to the reorientation of a significant part of regular military units, including U.S. regular Army and National Guard, to the special forces tasks of conducting my lies against U.S. cities and towns, the CIA establishment has prescribed the replacement of ordinary state and local police forces by a national counterinsurgency police force modeled on Hitler's SD Gestapo, such as the LEAA, is already rapidly becoming in the USA itself, and as the Royal Canadian Mounted Police is becoming in Canada. And I'm going to pause there, folks. And as I had mentioned, there is a RAND Corporation uh, paper talking about a uh, domestic police force within the U.S., this kind of thing, an insurgency, counterinsurgency force within the U.S. Uh, so... This is this is real uh, operational stuff, that, and and you know, these are real concepts that have been discussed and put forward by many of these people. And this is a concerning thing, isn't it? Uh, they have actual policy white papers about this stuff out there. Uh, so you know, a stability police force for the U.S. It's a Rand Corporation document. Look it up. It exists. It's out there. It's been talked about. It's been suggested. Uh, that we need this. And with the things going on in the world today, I'm sure there will probably be a push for this. And there will probably be a push for many of the recent ideas discussed earlier in this article uh, about forced mental health treatment for people, whether they need it or want it or not. Right. And, you know, this push for mental health evaluations and how we need to do something about people's mental health. Right. All these ideas are all inherent in here, and it's all the same thing brought forward again today. And uh, this guy laid it out in 1974 in this article. But uh, let's read on. We're just about done. Significant as the military and paramilitary aspects of the CIA establishment's illegal efforts may be, the main bulk of the establishment's work is concentrated in fascist forms of sociological and psychiatric programs in connection with which the names of such Nuremberg criminals as Dr. John Reese, Dr. Kurt Lewin, Dr. Nathan S. Klein, and similar psychopathic degenerates are most prominently associated. It is this latter predominant feature of the CIA establishment which the celebrated expert exposes, exposés omit to consider. Hence, by such a fallacy of composition in their accounts, they omit consideration of that vital conclusive evidence which, once considered, immediately answers all the important questions of what, who, and why. In brief, then, 
The CIA establishment is a Rockefeller family-sponsored and essentially Rockefeller family-controlled fascist conspiracy, a conspiracy whose military and paramilitary features are merely essential adjuncts of the fascist sociological and psychiatric conceptions developed by a mass of academics and professionals headed up by the late Dr. John Rawlings Reese. And we're going to end it right there, folks. He goes on to continue uh, a little bit about, uh, um, you know, a little bit more about Nixon, the case of Nixon and stuff like that. But we're not going to get into that tonight. I think we've covered quite enough. But you could see here, uh, essentially, sometimes, you know, some of the names have probably changed. But essentially, it's the same kind of uh, dynamic going on. You have these large uh, tax-free philanthropic organizations that fund much of this stuff. They're used to uh, channel funds uh, through many different things in, into intelligence agency projects, which are largely uh, influenced by Tavistock. And uh, this is what's been done, and it's, it's been uh, used as a domestic program against the masses here. You see... It's a psychological warfare campaign. It's an insurgency, counterinsurgency campaign going on. Uh, and they've been trying to steer and engineer the masses uh, through sociological and psychiatric means uh, with use of these different methods brought forth by John Rawlings Reese and, and some of the other associated Tavistock projects and things there. And they're using them to steer public opinion and change the uh, dynamic of how people behave in society and about uh, how we respond to things. And you, you see that these same old machinations and manipulations are going on today, right? It's the same tricks, okay? They, they play upon our fears and try to steer us in, in, you know, thinking different ways. And we can certainly see how they're trying to create this public outcry for more mental health services, right? And this was all part of Reese's uh, plans to begin with. He wanted forced mental evaluations and mental health treatments for people to keep them docile, right? And to keep them controllable and, and compliant. Uh, so we see the echoes of this going on today. And they're not above staging events, folks, and they're not above uh, orchestrating events to bring about these kinds of social changes that they want. We've seen that. I mean, I, I think that's a, a demonstrable point. Uh, this has been done, and there's quite uh, a lot of the time y you will find either direct or indirect links to intelligence agencies inherent with many of these events that go on that they use as these contrivances to try to uh, steer our behaviors in certain ways. And this all ties back once again to this John Rawlings Reese guy and the Tavistock Institute. These are all the methodologies laid down by that group and that are still steered uh, primarily by that group or people within that, that group. Uh, so it's important to keep these things in mind. Uh, so essentially what's been done is the Rockefeller backed and, you know, I would say not just the Rockefellers, but most of these uh, uh, wealthy elitist class uh, families and, and people out there who have these foundations that are uh, actually modeled after the Rockefeller Foundation. That was one of the first ones. So uh, 
you have all of these these foundations they are funding various projects and, and researches uh, within academia and different places and they they become beneficiaries of the information that's being studied right so that being uh, the case they they are privy to this information and they're able to feed it to who they need it to within various intelligence agencies and services to get things done and they see themselves as being the ones that should direct and guide this because they have this twisted notion that they have the divine right to rule don't they and we've discussed this in other programs and stuff before but this is primarily what's been going on here so they they direct uh these different uh social programs with the funding in different ways and they have people like a dr john rawlings reese direct these programs to uh, get the outputs that they want from these programs to get the social changes the behavioral changes the massive uh, the mass social behavior changes that they want from these programs so they they put uh, you know somebody like that in charge and they feed them the funds and let them do their thing and they have these uh, people linked up with various uh, assets within the intelligence community to get things done in certain ways and you know no matter what uh the outcomes may be right or no matter what uh, what what it takes right as what i should say no matter what it takes to get the job done because that's the important thing to these people they it's it's a means to an end the end is control and they don't care what it takes within the uh the auspices of the means to do so they'll do it and that that's the bottom line here they, they want to effectuate massive social change in this world and they've been succeeding in a lot of ways haven't they they've, they've really changed the way people behave uh, using these different methodologies and uh, with the technology that they have now it's the whole technocracy push right if they could get everybody bought into this this would give them unprecedented ways of wielding this type of psychological and sociological uh, manipulation in a massive scale so that that's what they're looking for here and that's what they've manufactured and steered into place and places like tavistock lead the way right and uh, they they have massive influence within governments and quasi-government agencies and the intelligence agencies right that that's the whole uh um, how should we say the the octopus of control right uh, many people have written about this and uh, it's it's interesting to look at because it, it goes all through different facets of society it's amazing the reach that a place like tavistock has when you look at it so uh, you have some of these these key uh sociologists who uh set out some of the groundwork here and they're able to actually steer the behaviors of the masses uh, just through this network by uh, utilizing different facets within the network to push different programs and that's largely what's been done so we, we see how indoctrinated we've become with a lot of this stuff uh, but anyway folks that's that's about all i have for tonight now uh, we could see now you know tavistock's war against the public uh, how they've utilized the cia and how they've uh, been funded largely by uh, many of these wealthy elite families uh, and this is how the job gets done right you have the tools you have the funding you have the network that's essentially what it's all about 
They've, they've got all these things in place, and they've had a lot of time to perfect them. And now they have massive uh, uh, new technologies that they could wield in many ways that they hadn't had previously. So that makes this a, a even more dangerous uh, situation. But uh, don't let them get you, folks. Now that you understand what's being done and how they manipulate the masses and the minds of people, and you could see through the ruse, right? Once you see through the ruse, you're less easily controllable by them. And they don't want you to see through the ruse, and they don't want you to understand the methods or the network that uh, they use to institute the methods. And that network is Tavistock, right? Uh, And, you know, various other facets that are related to the whole Tavistock thing here. Uh, But anyway, that's all for tonight, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now.
in the chair. 